take having a spiritual awakening on our own, what kind of results can we expect? Do we always need guidance, such as a sponsor, or can we get positive results on our own? You're not supposed to fix the broken tool. You're supposed to get a new tool. This isn't about, this isn't about changing the furniture. This is moving out of the house. You know? Don't try to fix it. Just leave it alone. Go on to the, the thing you should be doing. And yes, everybody needs somebody. Somebody was pointing out to me that Tiger Woods has a coach and Joe Montana has a coach and, you know, you need someone and fortunately there's a lot of good people out there in AA who, who you can sit down with. I'm um, I'm always amazed that in our literature it talks specifically to the fact that in the beginning of AA, you know, way back when, when we weren't so slick, uh, they used to set aside one evening for spiritual guidance and answering of questions. And I don't know of too many groups, they have beginner's meetings, but that's more about orientation. I don't know too many groups that really have an evening or a day meeting set aside where they just do spiritual orientation. But yes, you do. And I don't think your tool's busted. Your perception of it may be that it's busted. I don't think you have to do anything. The fact is, is we are the pipe. We're not the well. It happens through us, not by us. All we have to do is start accessing the Spirit and seeking God, and I believe that we will be transformed in that process. How did you develop a solid idea of who your higher power is, and how do you make your higher power bigger? I don't think you can make a higher power bigger. Plenty big to start with. Uh, I've developed the idea of who my higher power is over the last 34 years. I've developed it in taking the steps. I've developed it in conversations with my teachers in the program. I've developed it by going to conferences. I've developed it by reading. I've developed it by going to retreats. I've developed it by encouraging the interest that I have in knowing who my God is. And uh, I think that's all you have to do is to, t- is to take the kernel of that and feed it. And your journey will, will pull you along. Uh, I was spurred on initially by Bill Wilson's story, his Winchester Cathedral experience, where he said, when he really asked for God and needed God and wanted God to come, he did. And then he said something even almost as profound as that. He said, unfortunately, he was quickly uh, moved out of that moment by the clamor, by worldly clamors, most of which came from within. And those, uh, again, not being scarred by education, I looked up the word clamor, and it means continuous noise is a clamor. And think of how far we've come from when Bill was around to how many clamors there are today in this techno-barbaric world. Bells, whistles, phones. This new millennium, the Holy Grail, is going to be silent. One of these seems to be more of a comment. Why do we give this up? Serenity, peace, and love so easily. I take that to be more of a, a statement than a question. And it's a good question, one that we could all ask ourselves. Uh, next question. I get confused by the polarity of talking all the time. I need to learn and love. 
paired with the idea of living in the now because I could die tomorrow. It seems like these are two different ways to live. Are there ways to combine them harmoniously? I get confused by the polarity of talking all the time. I need to learn and love paired with the idea that I may die. Uh, I think life is a paradox. I think both those things are true. I think you have to live with the awareness that life is impermanent. I think the last, I'm 50, I'll be 59 next month. I think I'm obviously in the last quartile or last 10 or 20 years of my life. Probably. Uh, I think the last segment of your life is dealing with your mortality. And bit by bit, you lose the things that you are attached to, whether it's your sexuality, your athleticism, your business, your, you know, one by one by one, the world starts to reduce the things. And what you are left with, I believe, and I, with probably even having a comment on it with all Ken's experience with dying, but I think there is a, a sparseness, a cleanness, a, a singularity. There is a stripping away. And at the moment of death, I don't think almost anything that we are concerned about is of any matter at all. One of the things I've been blessed with in my travels in sobriety is I've been blessed with teachers. I don't, I, maybe because I, I, maybe I wanted to be a teacher that I've been attracted to the men and women who are kind of teachers. And I think if you got the wisest, oldest men and women on the front porch in one of those big old southern places and you went to them and you just wanted to be with them and you got a cup of coffee and you sat down in the rocking chair, I think they'd all pat us on the head and just say, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It's okay. That so much of the stuff that just drove us nuts and we were worried about doesn't matter and it is okay. Life is okay just the way it is. You don't have to mess with it. You don't have to worry about it. And uh, But I think simultaneously you have to play full out. I think you have to be in the game. I think you have to try to be a lover. I think that each of us have special gifts. Each of us are a special unfolding of God's consciousness. I think that is, I think the price of not being connected to God, the price of not having recovery, the price of not being well is never getting to be who you are. In addition to being the essence of God, in addition to being that special spark, we are also a human expression of God, and that each of us has a particular pitch that we play when the wind of God blows through us, and it is a special gift. And it is, and I think when we are allowed to play that tune, to hear that note, our life, in those moments, we are as full as we have ever been. Most of us with the pathology of alcoholism, and to our saying no to certain aspects of our recovery impede, and, and sometimes we never get that gift out of the box. It is still under the piano with the bow on it. That's a tremendous price to pay that you never got a chance to be Ken, or you never got a chance to be Bob. Uh, one of the great mystics in days of yore wrote an article in which he said, through each one of us, God is trying to become something he has never been before, and we impede him. We impede him by trying to dig our heels in and maintain our own identity. And it's not until we are willing to surrender that identity to the all that we become the all. You know, it, healing, the healing process is, 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 is love. And love, as I said before, is the strongest force in the world. And it's not about, it's not about loving with conditions. It's just loving. 
it takes it takes pure love to recognize the fact that everyone is entitled to be who they are even if i don't agree with them and there was a play downtown in san diego just finished running ran for a year and a half and it was called i love you just the way you are now change one of the last questions is what are some of the practices to stay in the now more often uh there's a powerful book which uh, is called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. It is a very interesting book. It's a book about consciousness. It's a book about ego, and it's a book about obsessive thinking. It's a book about the modern mind, and it's a book about God. And it, I, I think it's a very interesting uh, book. I think that as we go through our recovery and as we go to events like we're having today, you walk away with one or two thoughts or ideas. One of the thoughts you may walk away with is just maybe before we walked in this room, this idea about how do you stay in the now would never have been a question in your mind. That it's a question in your mind today because of the conversation we've had in this room. Okay? If you go to other rooms like this and you go to other meetings and you are open and you listen, you will get other encouragements and other ideas about how to do it. I think the best way to do it is to know that you are not your mind and you are not your thinking. And when you don't so closely identify with your mind, you have an opportunity that you have not had before to be in the now. It is thinking that will take you to the past and project you to the future. It is being able to watch your mind start to do that and let it go. A friend of mine said you have a grand central station mind. You do not have to get on every train that goes through the station. And that, and that most of the great the old masters would talk about letting the trains go through. Letting the clouds, thoughts are like clouds in the sky, just let them go through. You do not have to, you know, interact with every, and, and that's the freedom we're talking about. I like to use a lot of practical things because I'm a pretty practical person. And one of the things I use as an everyday reminder is every time my phone rings, I never pick it up on the first two rings. As soon as I hear the phone ring, I say, thank you, Lord, for keeping me sober today. Please keep me keep me awake to your wish. And, uh, and instead of then, I pick the phone up. I'm usually a much better conversationalist then. And the same way at red lights. When I stop at red lights, I pretty much say the same thing. Lord, keep me sober today, and thank you for all your gifts. And uh, this constantly reminds me to stay in the moment, and it constantly reminds me that I'm not in charge. How do you work through or walk through phantom fears? Phantom fears to me are other people's fears. Mine are all real. Yeah. Uh, fear is something that happens in thinking. In the last, for the last six weeks, I have had a pretty good sized business deal that I very much wanted to go a certain way. And it has fallen out of bed seven or eight times in the last six weeks. And maybe for one of the first times in my adult life, and it's important to me, it, it, it could make a difference in 
the financial stability of my life. You know, but it's a, it's not a small deal. And I think I had more freedom to have it happen and then not happen, happen and not happen. Now, I did ask my wife to pray that what was supposed to happen, happened. My wife is one of the better prayers around. Uh, you'd have to be being married to me. <laughs> I have been almost a constant source of growth for her. Uh, but I was startled. You know, sometimes I forget. I've been doing this for 34 years. I really, and it's important to me. I really try, I don't do it all the time. But I do it pretty often. And I was freer than I have been. Maybe at any other point in my life to have it not happen and happen and not happen and happen and not happen and happen. And I thought, that's really freedom. And I promise you, whoever asked this question, that, you know, 10 years ago, you know, when I wanted to go, talk to Ken about it. I mean, the fear that I would have had around that would have been just extraordinary. I would have been having, I would have been having hours of conversation about that with my sponsor and with my partner. I would have been talking about it endlessly. And one of the freedoms I have today is I, I have more freedom to have something happen when it's really happening and have it not happen when it's not happening. And the fact is, is that there were probably only about two hours in the last two months that I needed to interact around that issue. And that most of all the other times that it popped up in my mind, it wasn't happening. It was just a thought. And I could have spent 200 hours talking about what if in that process, and I don't think I spent two hours. And that is like being let out of jail. When I first uh, read the book, big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I read, we're driven by a hundred forms of fear. I thought it was just another exaggeration. And I thought these guys who wrote this book really needed help. And, uh, since I've been here, if anything, they probably underestimated the number. Because fear, the fear that we're talking about now is, it talks in the big book, it says, fear is an evil and corroding thread and our fabric is shot through with it. We're just shot through with fear. We're constantly in fear. And that's because we're not comfortable with who we are and what's going on around us, obviously. The other thing was in the 12 and 12, it says, we feel that freedom from fear is more important than freedom from want. Fear that they talk about here, the phantom fear, obviously doesn't exist. And if something doesn't exist, then you can't do anything about it. And it's a terrible burden to be in a scenario trying to do something about something that doesn't exist and you can't do anything about it. It seems to take a toll on people, you know. Uh, the reality of life is the reality of life. What is, is, and what is not, is not. And the simplicity of life is to know, you know, it says to be or not to be. And what I found out is the only way to be is not to be. And when you get to the point where it just doesn't matter which which way it goes. We have a, a gentleman who passed away in our area. He was sober 39 years, got sober at 50 and died at 89. And he's one of my heroes. And his simplicity was amazing to me. And one day at a meeting, they were talking about fear and making a decision. And Lewis went up and Lewis cleaned the cells at the county jail. And he used to wear these flood pants and high work boots and one suspender on and one suspender off. 
And he always got up and said the same thing. My name is Lewis, and I come here because I'm trying to stay sober. And uh, he would he'd go up, and they talked about this fear and decision. And Lewis reached in his pocket, and he pulled out a silver dollar, and he flipped it. And he said, heads, I'll do it this way. Tails, I'll do it that way. It doesn't matter. I'm 39 years sober. I can live with it either way. And when you can live with it either way, that's that's uh, that's an amazing thing. He also had a deal with the Reader's Digest one day where he was re- he was looking at the word vocabulary, the power vocabulary, and then turning to the back and putting down the answer, looking at the answer. And one of the newcomers who had like eight or ten years said uh, said to him, Lewis, that's not the way it's supposed to work. There are, it's a multiple choice. You're supposed to guess which one it is and then check your answers in the back. And Lewis looked at him and he said, why would I guess if I know where the answer is? Patty, do you want us to do anything? Do you want us to wind up or... One unshared thought I've had this weekend is uh, I have the same feeling a little bit when I'm around Ken. It's intimidating, his freedom that he has around materialism. I am a very materialistic person. I do not have the freedom around material things that Ken has. One of my biggest fears is that God would make me happy and poor. And yet I'm, I'm convinced that the, there are major lessons for me. I've already had significant lessons, but it, it is interesting. And I, when I listen to you talk, I both am very attracted to what I hear and somewhat intimidated by your freedom in that area. I never expected uh, AA to be what it was. I expected AA to be a way not to drink. And I got an AA, and I found out that there was a program that dealt with physical, but also mental and spiritual, and that AA was a way to live, that the steps were the program. And if I applied those principles in my life, my life, and I would be changed in such a way that, first of all, I would not have to drink. Pretty profound change in itself. And that secondly, as those principles seeped into the core of my life, that my life would change, and my experience in that life would change, and that a lot, awful lot of the negative things that I was doing and the defects of character and the consequences of those defects of character would be reduced and my life would start to alter and the implication would be that it would alter for the better. I've always wanted to arrive. I've wanted to arrive in my business life. I've wanted to arrive athletically, sexually, financially, AA-wise, you know, become a, a big deal in AA. Never, never have. I think one of the things about life as you get older is when they talk about midlife crisis. The midlife crisis is, is that you get, as your life starts to get towards this last quartile, and you take a look, you realize that many of the mountains you wanted to climb, you're not going to climb. And that many of the mountains you have climbed didn't matter. And that many of the things you thought were so damn important weren't important at all. And some of the things that you didn't think were important were awfully important. Family becomes more important. Love becomes more important. 
being right becomes less important. Wanting to know who I am and what it's all about probably becomes the most important of all. Today, if I were to report on the idea, over the last 15 years, the biggest idea I've had is how reluctant to change I am. That has been maybe the theme of my, kind of the focus of my recovery. Today, I have been holding a thought for the last couple of years that is starting to excite me, and that is, is that my higher power and the God of my understanding is who I am. I used to be worried that if I turned myself over to God, he'd send me to China. You know, that idea that I'd be a missionary or I'd, you know, never get laid again or something. But, I mean, there'd be, uh, but, but there'd be something that if I turned, you know, that God would not want me to have any fun or that, at any rate, that, that the process of turning myself over to God would be a restriction. I mean, I clearly had that. That's an old idea. And I'm starting to have a sense that the God of my understanding is me. That there is a part of me that is God. That I am not, may not be all that God is, but there is a part of me that is comprised of God. And that is my higher power. And in that place, there's no conflict between what that power wants for me and me. It is me. And that it is my connection with that power that rather than being restrictive would be the fulfilling of my life. That by almost by definition it could not be restrictive. And that almost by definition it would be fulfilling. And that everybody who would be connected to me in my life, my wife and our three boys and my partner and my, that it would it would be the my turning my will and my life over to that power and, and being as clear a channel as possible for that power to express itself in my life would be the best act of love for anybody that was connected to me in any way. Well, I want to thank uh, Patty and the group for inviting me and Cynthia and Tom for coming out and picking me up, and uh, I enjoyed being with Bob, and uh, Bob is a guy of extremes, as you know, uh, going to China or getting laid again, I mean, that's a, I mean, you, uh, I mean, I watched the meter go way over on that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always like sick people, and, and and the reason being is that I closely identify. And uh, but the uh, this has been a, a good weekend, as all weekends are that that end in this kind of a thing for me. You know, I had a, a brother and a sister who died a week apart. One died Christmas Day of '85, and another one died. Uh, my brother died New Year's Day of '86. And my mom died shortly after that because she just didn't understand why kids should die before the parents. And and outside of my mom, they all died from alcoholism, cirrhosis. And and the bottom line is is that uh, going out to the cemetery, I, I'm a visual person. And I went out to the cemetery and I saw the headstones. And the headstone, every headstone looks exactly alike. It has your name at the top. It has a dash of about six inches. And then it has the date you died. 
And that dash, which is never more than six to eight inches on any headstone, is life. It's the dash. And I'm older than Bob, so I'm a little bit further along in the dash. And the reality is, is I don't have time to waste trying to figure out things. I don't have time for resentment. I don't have time for anger. I don't have time for what should have been done and wasn't done or was done and shouldn't have been done. Today, I'm going to live my life totally in the moment and I'm not going to let anybody else dictate how I live my life. I'm going to live it as simply as I can. And by not having any agenda in that area, I have the best agenda. And life is, is very simple. You know, this is a real tough thing being an earthling. And, um, and we have to take really good care of one another because we're only on loan. And someone who's in your life today may not be there tomorrow. So you can't leave them with an angry word or something that's really ugly because you may never get a chance to see them again. I've left people and they just weren't there the next day. And when you see people that aren't there the next day that you wish you had said something different to the day before, um, there's no way you can really make an amends for that. So the idea is don't put yourself in a posture where you have to make an amends that you either don't want to make or you can't make in reality. And to live life very simply and realize that everything is okay. Regardless of how it looks, it's okay. It's always been okay. And there's really nothing to work on because it's already done. This is God's world. We're just, we're just as kids out here and we're supposed to be enjoying playing in the garden. You know? And I like the kids because I hang out with kids and they seem to know what's going on. You know, I remember one time watching a kid in an elevator and I said, why are you scratching your head? And he looked at me and he said, because I'm the only one who knows it itches. <laughs> you know, kids, kids have a way of keeping you right in the moment. And down where we had the international, down in the Seaport Village in 95, there's a little island there, man-made island, and the kids fly their kites there. And we get a lot of what they call June gloom, where the clouds are pretty low and you can't see the sun, but you know it's there and it's going to come out later. And I've seen kids fly their kites there. And I remember walking up to this lad who was about nine years old, and his kite was above the clouds. And I said, how do you know your kite is still there? And he looked at me and he said, because I can feel the pull of it, mister. And in my life, I felt the pull of it. When I'm doing God's work, no one has to tell me, I feel the pull of it. And when I'm not, I feel the pull of that too. And I'm very thankful that I had an opportunity to spend this evening, uh, this afternoon with Bob and you folks. And I love you very much. And please, please take real good care of one another because we're only on loan. Thank you.